Today's scripture reading comes from Exodus 33, verses 12 through 23. Let us all rise for the reading of God's word. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take, my, take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to pray one more time for our message. Pray with me. God, our helper, by your Holy Spirit, open our minds that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may be led into your truth and taught your will for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Welcome. Um, If you are new or visiting, our service is not normally this heavy, and I apologize. It's really light. You know, there's a lot of cotton candy. No, um... But we really love the Lord here, and we want to uh, be honest with how the Spirit and the Word of God leads us. So we want to be faithful. We want to be true. And if God gives us a conviction, we want to follow that. And so you are in the middle of us maturing and growing, just as Miriam shared, in our faith. All of us, we're all maturing and growing in our faith. And praise God, for He is the author of our salvation. We have been going through the book of Exodus, and now we're nearing its end. There's only two, about two weeks after this, and we're going to go into a new series of Matthew, which I'm really excited about. I was so excited. I started reading Matthew a few weeks ago, and I said, no, 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 you've got to stay in Exodus, got to finish well. But it's amazing how Exodus and the people of God hearing these promises, and when Jesus comes in, it just just brings back Exodus and all the promises so that as we go through Exodus, we'll see it just flows just perfectly, perfectly as God intended in Jesus' life. Um, We saw that God took the people of Israel out of bondage, out of slavery, out of Egypt, and he took them, saved them, brought them to his mountain, gave them his law, set up a covenant, a promise, just as we covenanted with one another in baptism and covenanted with the Lord. And so we saw this happen, 
And then the very next page, we saw the golden calf being made. The very next page, the golden calf, an idol was made. And revelry was happening. And people were saying, this, O Israel, is Yahweh. That's what they said. This, is, this calf, this bull that they made out of gold, say, this is God. This is Yahweh who brought you up out of Egypt. And you're wondering, how could this be? After all that God did for them, how can this be? And we go to this chapter in chapter 33. And I want to go over at least three sections of this chapter. The three sections, the first section is about stripping second section is about formality, and the third section is about glory. And I want to start by asking this question. If heaven gave you, if heaven gave you everything you wanted, your dream car, your dream job, your dream house, your dream spouse, your dream 2.3 kids, riches beyond measure, vacations Anywhere in the world, anywhere, and yes, even that remote island just off the coast that fits just 20 people and everything is catered. You guys read about that? Okay, maybe it's just me. Anything you wanted, except without Jesus, would you take it? Anything you wanted, but without Jesus, would you take it? And that's a question I want to start with. And there's a flip question I want you to also keep in the back of your mind. What if heaven gave you absolutely nothing, nothing that you wanted except Jesus? Would you take it? So after the golden calf incident, God says to his people, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. God says, get up and go out. And he recites Abraham, the promise he gave Abraham to Moses. And verse 2 says, I will send an angel before you. And I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. Perhaps some of us would take that deal. That's amazing, isn't it? You're going to give us every enemy into our hands. You're going to give us a land flowing with milk and honey. Remind you again that flowing with milk and honey meant riches beyond even imaginations. How do you have a land flowing with milk and honey? How much, how much cattle and how much honeybees and all these nectar must be there to have this? And he's saying, I'm going to do that. I'm going to send an angel. I'm going to give you everything that I have promised Abraham, but I will not go with you. And in verse 4, I don't know how you would respond. I will give everything that you want except I won't be there. But in verse 4, this is how the people responded. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his 
ornaments. You know, you can knock on the Israel people all you want. A lot of us have been doing this Exodus study, and every time we see the Israelites kind of stumble and fall and sin, some of us wondered, how can they do this? How can they do this? You know, like God has shown them amazing miracles, plagues that the world still couldn't ever replicate, and a parting of the sea where all of the Egyptian chariots and armies were decimated, saving the people now and in the future from any other attack. And we see here, like, how can they do this? But the people here mourn. You know, I think there's something if we don't get that. There's something about us if we still don't get it, thinking, oh, how can they do this? And not look at our own lives. And not look at our own stiff neckness. That word alone, saying, I will not go with you, the people took as a disastrous word, and it made the people mourn. You know, this is the case of, I can't live with you, and I can't live without you. This is like every uh, romantic song now out there. Um, I don't know. Uh, when I was reading this, it was like, can't live if living is without you. And then the, that song came to my head. But I'm, you're thinking, oh, these are romantic songs. But even before any of these songs came out, all the way back, thousands of years before, we saw that there is a can't live with you and can't live without you here in the Bible. But there's a twist. The twist here is that I can't live with you because you would be consumed, burned to a crisp. God's holy wrath would blaze out. And if you think about it, oddly enough, this was to protect the people. Even to this very moment, God still cares for his people, even though they are a stiff-necked people. And the stiff-necked imagery was used to give that people at that time a familiar image. Because when they would try to guide a horse or donkey into a good place or to do work, stiff-necked animals would resist and stiffen up their necks. And so their image would be right there. They would know what that means when God says you are a stiff-necked people resisting any guidance or any of the love that God is bringing them toward. It is familiar to us because it shows us there's a lopsidedness to this covenant. It's infuriating when a partner that you've covenanted or contracted with does not hold up their end. And we've discussed that a covenant goes even further than a contract because a contract was a vow made in blood. A marriage is a covenant precisely because of this. It's a covenant made in blood. And we hear things like die to each other. And when we say, you know, in a covenant relationship, in marriage, you're to die to one another. But when we hear it, we translate it to, you die for me. And we start twisting what God has intended, defiling the sacred thing that it points to. 
This is a disastrous word, and the Lord is the one that tells the people to take off their ornaments, ornaments that were once used to make a golden calf. Now, are ornaments bad? No, because we'll see in the next few chapters ahead, Exodus 35, that they would take gold from their ornaments to make the vessels for the tabernacle. So are ornaments itself bad? No. The answer is no. But God says take off the ornaments. And we must realize that there is a time and place for things. God teaches us and teaches his people that this is his wisdom and we are to learn it. Gifts like sex are not bad. It is a gift. But if you've abused it, yes, abstain. Take off the ornament until Exodus 35. Until God has a good use where you will be happy with it. We need to start to learn that there is a time and place for the gifts God gives us, and using these gifts well glorifies God. You know, the debate that rages on today is insane in this very light. If something has been abused, then take it off, abstain, put it away, learn how to use it, learn what's glorifying to God, then take it up again. And I don't understand this debate. Why are we arguing? That something is good or bad. Something is a thing. And we are to use it to glory. I, if, if someone came to me and said, you know what, I have every right to bring a grenade here into the sanctuary, I would say, absolutely not. Absolutely not. You cannot bring a grenade into the sanctuary. And they'd be like, why not? I should be free to arm myself. It's like, no. You know why? This is a place of worship. This is a house dedicated to worshiping God. This is not a place of, um, what do you call it, physical war. It's not. There's a time and place for a grenade, and this is not the place. This is a, a debate like this is insane because we're thinking, now we have to make intrinsic, put intrinsic values on tools and gifts and things, and that's not the case. It's not. It's to use for God's glory. And if we're not using it well, then God demands that we take it off, put it to the side until we can. And this is what I believe that we also need to hear and gain wisdom from what God is teaching his people. And this is what happens. Therefore, it says in the last verse of the section, that, uh, in, in, in this section, in verse 6, therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai where they were. Therefore, you know what the therefore is? Because what was most important was at stake. Not the thing, not the ornament, not the gold, not the gifts that they got. The most important thing was God would not go with them. And if God would not go with them, I'll take anything. I'll take off anything you want. That's, that's, that's the worst possible outcome if God doesn't go with us. So Israel strips themselves of their ornaments. If something is causing you to sin, to build a golden calf, if something is causing you to 
uh, stoke or kindle the wrath of God, take it off. Stop wearing it. Stop using it. Stop doing it. How much longer will you be a stiff-necked people? Now, before we get on to verse 12 that was read, there's a little section of narrative that isn't present, meaning that is in the present tense, meaning the Bible takes time to explain something that has been happening that it didn't before. Exodus does not carry all the stories and happenings of the post-Exodus Israel. That's why we have Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy as well. But in this section, it's very interesting. It's, uh, for me, it's fascinating because it tells us, now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp. This is verse 7. Far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. The tent was far off so that the Lord wouldn't have to withdraw his presence altogether. To seek the Lord, a person who had to separate themselves from their people, but once they were there, there was a possibility that they could have fellowship with God. And who did that? Who was the one that did that? It was Moses. Moses would go out. And when Moses went out, something incredible happened. The pillar of cloud that would lead the people of Israel, this magnificent, incredible sight, would descend on the tent as Moses would enter the tent. This pillar of cloud would descend, and the Bible next says that the people, when, whenever Moses would go out, because it was a long ways off, Moses would start walking to this tent of meeting, it was a long ways off, and when Moses started going out, all the people saw that Moses was going out. So they also would get out and stand at the entrance of their tent. They would stand as Moses went out. And when the pillar of cloud would descend, the Bible says that they, the people on the outside, standing on the outside of the tent looking at Moses, they would rise up and worship. The words used in the ESV Bible is rise up and worship. Rise up and worship literally meant they would stand up and they would prostrate themselves. And if they're already standing, why would the Bible need to mention stand up again? Because there is other religions out there who also do this. They face certain directions, they rise up, and then they prostrate themselves. There are other belief systems and religions that also do this on certain occasions. What they do isn't original, as we see this very thing happen here in the Bible, in the text, thousands and thousands of years ago. There is a contrast, though, that's being made in this narrative. Where's the contrast? The contrast is between Moses and the people. Where were the people? At the camp far away. Where was Moses? Moses was in the tent of meeting where God would descend. How did they respond with God's presence descending? They would stand up and bow down prostrate. It's a picture of reverence, yes, but it's also a different picture from Moses. So there's Moses. Here's Moses. Moses goes into the tent, and the Bible says the Lord would speak to him face to face. And I want you to remember this. Face to face as a man speaks to his friend. That is a different picture 
that you saw from the people standing outside the tent. There are people that are standing at a distance outside the tent, looking up, rising up, and then bowing prostrate. And then there's Moses. When he goes into the tent, he stands with God face to face, speaks with him as a man speaks to his friend. Moses had something that all the other people did not. What was that? It was intimacy. You can do rituals and convince yourself this is out of reverence for God, but I will also argue that you do not have the intimacy that Moses had with God. And this is very reminiscent when Jesus comes down to the earth and he says in John chapter 15, verse 15, he says this, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. That means even this has a pointing and a significance is showing us, oh my goodness, there is an intimacy that God is drawing us to, and this is especially revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And now we go on to the passage that was read. And Moses says to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you also have found favor in my sight. We get to Moses' prayer. First, Moses says to God the things that God said to him. God said to him, bring up this people. That was a command. So he says that. Secondly, God says, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. And Moses is praying, and he starts off by saying, this is what you said, God. This is what you said. So a lot of times people are like, I don't know how to pray. How should I pray? Look at Moses' prayer. You start praying by what God has shown you. What has he told you? What has he given you about himself? This is what you said, God. And then he goes, now therefore, now therefore because of the things that you have said, he says this, show me your ways. Show could also mean the word teach, teach me your ways that I may know you and that I can find favor in your sight. There's a mirroring of words. I can find favor in your sight, teach me your ways so I can find favor in your sight. This mirroring is intriguing because once again, it shows intimacy. What's at the center of this prayer? It's intimacy. You can't have it when you're steeped in sin. You can't have it if you consider worship a formality. Look up the opposite of the word intimate. How can you have it? By listening to the word of God. And we'll get to that. And Moses ends the statement by asking to consider these people his. The intercession comes at the end. God responds to the intercession, to the prayer that Moses says, by saying that his presence will go forward and that he will give rest. The literal word here is really fascinating because he said, my presence will go with you, is the word face. 
The, the exact same word. When, remember, we said, I said, remember the word he talks to Moses face to face? That face just literally meant the front part of your head. That's what face is, right? And so my presence will go with you is the front part of my head will go with you. My face will go with you and you will find a place of rest. Now, that, that just itself should be mind-blowing. But Moses says next, that if God's presence or God's face doesn't go with them, then not to bring them up from that place. And that seems like a very strong, strong statement. That's a, that's a little strong, Moses. What do you mean if God doesn't come? If, if you don't give me your face, then I don't even want to go. Then how do I know? How would people know that I have found favor in your sight if you're not going with us? Don't people know that I belong to you God, that I am your child, if you go with me, if you go with your people. And everything flows from this verse in verse 16. He's saying we are called to be distinct from all the other peoples and nations in the world, distinct, separated, holy. How are God's people distinct, separate, and holy, it's God's face. God's presence goes with his people, leads his people. It's God's presence and face that shows that we are now intimate with the creator and the mighty God. And God says and responds, yes, yes, I will do that. I will go with you. This is an incredible intercessory prayer that we are witnessing here in these verses. And after God says yes, that's not it. Moses continues, and he says, please show me your glory. Now, if you're young, we think, show me your glory is something like you get some kind of psychedelic experience. Show me your glory, and the ground shakes, and, the, and that kind of thing. And then I don't know what Moses was expecting, but he says this, Please first, please is also translated, I beg of you, I beg of you, show me your glory. Glory is kavod. Moses wants to see the manifold glory of God. Kavod means the heaviness and weight of God. Are you kidding me? That's what you're asking? Moses is asking for something incredible. And like we've talked about, and some of you have said maybe Maybe, Pastor Eugene, you talk about it a little too extensively. We can't handle the heaviness of the sun. I'm sorry for bringing it up again. We can't handle the heaviness of the sun, let alone God. 93 million miles away, and it can still pull the earth and orbit it. Try going close, it will destroy you, decimate you. It'll evaporate you, incinerate you. And it's only the sun. The creator of the sun is infinitely more massive and heavy, and glorious than that. Now I would like to say, but we're not intimate with the sun. It's an object. It doesn't have compassion. No matter how much you want to deify it, or personalize it, or pray to it, but God, on the other hand, has compassion, as we've seen in this very chapter. So much so, that this God, wants to talk to you face to face like a friend. So God does two things here. 
He goes, first, I will cause, well, first he says, no, like, you're going to die. You're just going to, you know. But, so he goes, you know, first, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And the Lord arranges Moses, puts him in a cleft on a rock, like, and I, I, I always find this amazing, like a cleft. So even though God doesn't show him his glory, even showing this, what's about to come, might shake him so much that he might just fall. So just so you don't fall, I'm going to put you in this cleft. It's like when you put a toy, like, in, like shove it in a corner so it doesn't, anyway. Um, but uh, Moses gets into a cleft and he says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, but he's going to see the afterglow of his glory. Meaning after his presence goes by, he's going to see what's remaining, right? And you cannot see my face. So he's going to cover his face with his hand and then go past him. And you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. And he says, the second thing is, I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. The name, I will proclaim my name. So this is really interesting. Moses goes, I beg of you, show me your glory. Show me your heaviness. I know you're incredible. I know you're infinite. I just really want to see you. I want to experience you, right? And this is God. God goes, no, you're going to die, but I'm going to let my goodness pass. I'm going to cover you. And go by. And secondly, I'm going to proclaim my name. That's really interesting. Uh, and it shows us something. God cannot be known to us right now through a visual image. This is why you don't make a golden calf and say, this is what God is like. How far does that image fall from the actual being of who God is? And he says something. He says, I am going to proclaim my name. And as he proclaims his name, he says, And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now, this is a, if, if you're reading in the English language, it's a little distant, it's a little far off, it's a little rough. But if you read it in the Hebrew or if you kind of understand it in the Eastern language, there, there are two things that God is really saying that I want us to get. He's saying this about himself. The two things is he's saying is, I am gracious and I am merciful. But how does he say it and what does it mean? It means in a sense that God showing grace, that's actually grace. You want to know what grace is? It's what I'm showing. That's grace. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. So when God is gracious, that is actually grace. And I will be merciful to whom I will be merciful to means when he's showing mercy, that's actually mercy. How do you define grace and mercy? By what God is showing us. That's what grace and mercy is. So when we are to be gracious and merciful to people around us, people who don't agree with us, the people who actually might consider us their enemies, even in our own country, how do we show grace and mercy? Define that. By how God showed grace and mercy. How did God show grace and mercy in this text? God's nature is shown to Moses. And if you want to know what grace and mercy is, it's what God is showing. We started with the question, could you live with God could you live without God? Because 
of sin and wrath and because of wrath, at the end of the chapter, we see that God is showing us the answer. Could I live with God? Yes. Yes. How? Because God is a God of grace and mercy. Don't be fooled by the trick question. Heaven with God, without God isn't heaven. All the things you wanted without, but without God is hell. The people are distinct and set apart because God's presence goes with them. He and his people are covenanted in an intimate relationship. These are all the things that I want to really summarize and bring home because Jesus fulfills this covenant by being the epitome of grace and mercy. Jesus fulfills this covenant by being the epitome, the pinnacle, the top showing of grace and mercy by sacrificing his life for us in death on a cross and being raised to life again by the power of God. Jesus fulfills this covenant when he calls us friend because through him and his actions, all the mystery and glory of the Father, he said, he has made known to his disciples. Please, show me your glory. You want to see God's glory? In John chapter 14, 9, it says, Jesus said to him, Philip, have I been with you so long you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is the glory of God. Because Jesus is God. You want to say, show me your glory, God. You want to sing those songs. You want to pray that prayer. Know this. If you have seen Jesus Christ, if you know Jesus Christ, you have seen the glory of God. And now as his redeemed people, we can be true and intimate worshipers of the Savior King. Let's pray. In the beginning of the message today, the question was asked, is there something that you also need to strip in your life, a sin that is keeping you from being intimate with the Lord? And if so, then ask for the power of the Holy Spirit for you to do so, so that you can be intimate with him, asking for his grace and mercy. And we can do it in confidence because God himself declares to his people, I am gracious and I am merciful. That is how we can have confidence in approaching the throne of grace. God himself invites us to the table. So let's pray at this time. Let's pray that we can be more and more intimate with our Lord Jesus Christ that we can grow in maturity, that we can abide in love for him and for one another just as he has commanded us. And this is possible because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. Let's pray.